0: Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is Erica Anderson. She is a nationally known leadership coach and founder of Podius International, a consulting, coaching, and training firm that focuses on leader readiness. Author, consultant, sought-after keynote speaker, her firm works with CEOs and top executives of many major corporations like PepsiCo, NBC, Time Warner Cable, and others. In addition to her books, you can also read her blogs on Forbes.com. Today, we're discussing her book, Growing Great Employees, Turning Ordinary People into Extraordinary Performers. Erica, welcome back to BizTalk. Thanks.
1: It's wonderful
0: to be here. I don't often read directly from a book, but this is probably one of the best introductions i read in some time, so I'm going to share this with the audience. I think it sets the stage in what we're going to talk about today. In the introduction of your book, Growing Great Employees, you write, Here's a little experiment. Find any 10 people who have some responsibility for others, work success, managers, HR staff, team leaders, one at a time, ask them what is the hardest and most challenging part of their job. Tell them they can say whatever they want, they don't have to be politically correct, and no one is writing down their answers. I'll bet you anything that 9 out of 10 will say something about dealing with the people stuff. Erica, well said. (laughs) Well, my... I've
1: conducted versions of that experiment for the last 25 years.
0: Well, and I wanted to um, read that for the audience because I would challenge people to actually in the next manager's meeting to facilitate a discussion around that and then maybe get into what the what and why it's being caused or they would write that down there. Because when I applied for, oh, really my second sales leadership role, I got the job, right? And so I'm with the with my future boss, and you know we're talking about the fact of uh, why he chose me and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, I'll never forget this. He said, "Look to me," he says, "You know, Jim." He says, "You're going to find that the job is real easy. It's the people that are going to drive you nuts." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, and
1: what's even what's even weirder about this is, you know, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but just for purposes of conversation, that. So I think it is kind of universally agreed that the most difficult part of any job is how do you deal well with the people? You know, how do you, how do you motivate them? How do you clarify for them what the job is? How do you get them head in the right direction? How do you develop them? And yet it's the part of the job that we get, generally speaking, the least preparation for. I mean, you know, this is just crazy to me. If, if, if you really stop and think about it, if somebody is going to be a salesperson, Generally, they get sales training. I mean, people are pretty good about giving people sales training because they understand that selling is a difficult thing and we have to train you how to do it. So they get some training in consultative sales and in time management and in, you know, even things like technical things like doing a call sheet. But when, quite often when people get elevated into sales management, the way it works is you walk into your boss's office and here she says, here, manage these five people. Good luck. It's going to be really tough. Yeah. You know, let me know if you have a problem. That we, this thing that is universally understood to be a complex and challenging thing, many, if not most, managers get almost no training to do it well.
0: Oh, but amen. Because again, it just brought back memories. Because man, I'm talking over um, three decades ago that um, yeah. that I was given that position. So, and I remember. Taking that role, um, uh, obviously uh, being a competent salesperson competent enough that that they promote you in the management and which is which is not always the best criteria by the way, but exactly. but I can remember sitting at that desk after the first week, but I remember being so overwhelmed. I thought I was yeah. busy as a salesperson, but I feel like I was falling into this black hole. I was yeah. totally unprepared for driving revenue, which is what a sales manager is supposed to do versus my role as a salesperson, which was to generate revenue. Yeah, I don't know if it's by dumb luck or putting my head down or tenacity or combination of all three of those. Uh, I just figured it out over time. So so here's the million-dollar question. Erica, what is the underlying theme behind this? Why, after three decades, are we still talking about, as leaders, we're not ready to lead people?
1: It's a great question, I, and I've thought about this a lot over the years. I think that we believe that when it comes to tasks or jobs that that require interacting with other people, we still have this leftover thing that it's quote unquote soft. And so it's not as important and you should just sometimes somehow magically know how to do it. Like we like we think we should all magically know how to parent, right? And we and we have to figure that out with some difficulty over the first you know, fifteen years of our kids' life. You know, it's 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 really a goofy assumption, and and the other thing that underlies it is we don't believe we still don't believe that there are that you can teach people to manage the same way you can teach them to sell or play tennis or cook a play. and you can. I mean, that's you know one of the things that I think makes uh, Proteus my company unique is that we we believe that both leadership and management are teachable. And that management particularly is craft-based. It's it's a set of skills that you can learn. And, of course, you know, some people are better than others. It kind of exists along a bell curve. Some people are, like you say, you know, you figure it out on your own or more successful. Well, some people try and figure it out on their own, and they're never successful because they're just not that naturally adept at it. So there are some people who start out sort of at the top of the bell curve. They're just pretty good natural managers of people. And lucky for them, then, you know, their natural tendencies come into play and they're pretty successful. There are other people, a lot of people who kind of live in the lower half of the bell curve, who could be pretty good managers if they got the support and the help both in terms of mindset and skills that they needed, but they don't. And so they fail, and it's bad for the business, and it's bad for them, and it's bad for the people they manage. So the main reason, really, I I wrote this book seven or eight years ago is I couldn't find it. I'd be coaching people, and they'd say, is there just a good, simple book that talks about how to manage people and why it's important? And at least I couldn't find one. I mean, there are a bunch of little kind of tips, tricks, books, you know, here's 50 things to say to people and, you know, and then there's good, dense theoretical management books, Peter Drucker, that help you understand the core of management. But just kind of the Boy Scout handbook of management. You know, how do you do it? How do you take a person? How do you figure out who to hire? How do you get it started right? How do you keep them growing? How do you, you know, transition people either up or out when you need to? How do you do this stuff? So, so that's why I wrote the book to help people understand that it is a set of skills. It's a craft. You can get
0: better at it. The metaphor of calling this a handbook, I believe, is accurate, Erica, because when you get your first manager's job you should read this book and then two to three years in your job you had to go back and reread it again.
1: I totally agree with you and, and we, you know, we have Proteus has um, managed skill training programs that we that use the intellectual property in this book. And uh, one of our clients is a big client big manufacturing company that has taught this to thousands of managers and kind of almost without exception, people say, Oh, God, thank you. Now i got some actual tools in my toolkit. I know how to have a feedback conversation. I know how to coach people. I know how to delegate something. I know how to listen better. It's like this, this stuff that I need every day to, to, to be pretty good at this. We're trying to help. That's, that's why I wrote this book. The thing that's so crazy to me about people not getting help to be good managers, it's not as though it's unimportant we've all experienced what it's like to have good managers and bad managers. And when you have a good manager, that really supports your success. It supports the success of the business. You know what you're supposed to do. You feel helped and supported to do that. You're clear. You get good feedback about whether or not it's going well. Responsibilities get delegated to you as you are capable of doing them. It's such an incredible enhancer and catalyzer of productivity to have people be managed well. It's just bizarre to me that business doesn't put more attention toward it.
0: Cuz we all know, right? I'll make a statement, I'm going to I can hear the heads nodding as I talk about this. We all know okay. that necessarily people don't quit jobs, they quit managers.
1: Totally. But there's also piles and piles of research that show that.
0: Right. But we still let our managers manage ineffectively, which I don't quite yeah. understand. So the question I have on this, what is some of the, the fundamental stuff you have to get right? And I was thinking about it has to, first of all, probably start at the top. Doesn't the CEO have to give more than lip service to you know, creating a culture where we're going to have the managers really effective at what they do? Doesn't it have to be a dictate that they insist upon doing that?
1: Yes, and they have to demonstrate it themselves. When you're the CEO, what you actually do is much more important than what you say. So it, it, to, to your point of giving more than lip service, a CEO who really wants to create a culture of good management and good leadership, he or she has to say the right things. He or she has to ensure that it's baked into the organization, that people are, Hired for, held accountable to, and rewarded or not for managing well, and he or she has to him or herself be a good manager. Be you know clear, give good direction, be fair, give good feedback, delegate—all the things that we talk about in the book. Because people, you know, people look to see what do you say, and then they look to see, well, do you do make sure that that's true in the organization, and then they look to see, are you actually doing it yourself? And if those three things line up you know, that's your best shot at creating the kind of culture where people are really managed well and and all the benefits accrue.
0: Our guest is Erica Anderson. We're talking about her book, Growing Great Employees, Turning Ordinary People into Extraordinary Performers. Erica, before we get too far into this, let's take a step back. Because before we even hire an employee, there's some planning we should do and some things we should get in line. So what is that pre-planning we need to have done before we even hire an employee?
1: Again, wonderful questions. When people hire, they tend to be way too superficial in what they're looking for. They look for technical skills. Does this person and markers of what they think are going to be success? So some people look at where did this person graduate from, you know, where did this person go to college? Some people look at, has this person had the, you know, particular job experience I need them to have? But... there's an interesting statistic that, uh, that I just read about a year ago and incorporated into a post I read at Forbes that when people, when fairly senior people, you know, management and executive level people are hired and they fail at their jobs in the first year, 87% of the time it's because of poor cultural fit which means not that they didn't have the right skills or experience or pedigree or, you know, degree for the job. It means they weren't the right kind of person for that organization. So that's one of the things you have to really think about. You have to think about, okay, what kind of a team am I trying to create? What kind of an organization is this that I'm a part of if I'm part of a larger organization? And what are, what's the DNA? What's the kind of behavioral DNA of that organization? Like, for instance, there's an example I use in the book. It, let's say you have a kids a, a company that invents kids toys then you're probably going to want people who are all the way from you know entry level to the CEO people who are playful people who are creative people who are um, team oriented you know the things that you collaborative people who would be you know the sorts of people who would be good in a company that invented kids toys let's say on the other hand that you are the you know, CEO of a company that makes life saving medical devices, <laughs> you know, you're going to want people who are rigorous, who are organized, who are, have a very high bar of quality. You know, it's going to be a different kind of organizational DNA. And if you don't look for that kind of stuff as well as for the skill sets, you're likely to hire somebody who might have on paper, the right skills, but who will be a terrible fit for your organization? So, you really have to think through that before you hire people, and then you have to interview to that too, which is a whole other thing. People, I mean, we could talk about that. People interview badly, and and you don't have to. You can interview, you can interview well to to find out if, if this really is a person who's going to be able to do well in your organization.
0: Yeah, that, that's a that's a whole other hour program. That, uh, definitely on an yeah. interview, right? Yeah. Well, in it,
1: in- yeah. Now, let me say, too, because it's such a big deal and this may be helpful to your listeners, so let's say two things about, about interviewing. One thing, thing one, people who interview talk way too much. You know, if you, if when you're interviewing somebody for a job, you should be talking no more than about 25% of the time because you're not trying to talk them into coming. You're trying to find out who they are, right? So that's thing one. Thing two is people in interviews almost always ask questions to which there are obvious right answers. Here's what I mean. So people will say in an interview, for instance, we really like self-starters. Are you a self-starter? <laughs> and then, you know, unless you're either brain dead or don't want the job, you're going to say, yes, I'm a self-starter. You know, so we talk about um, – behavioral interview and we talk about uh, I, I offer in the book a very simple way to not ask those right answer questions to um, it, instead kind of set up scenarios and then let the person just answer from their own experience for instance I'll give you a very funny example that's actually true um, what 15 years ago when I was hiring an assistant so you know my business was just starting to grow and I am hiring an assistant and at the time it was just, me and one other consultant and his assistant, and we were both on the road all the time. So the way I set it up, rather than saying, hey, you're going to have to spend a lot of time by yourself, is that okay? And all of my candidates would have said yes. Um, what I said was, um, okay, so I and this other consultant were on the road most of the time, and you're going to be in the office by yourself a lot. How would you deal with that? Not is that okay or would you be good with that, or you know? but just how would you deal with that? And it was so fascinating. The first person said that that wouldn't be a problem. This, really, she said this. That wouldn't be a problem for me. I have a lot of friends in the area. <laughs> but, okay, no, you know. The second person got very twitchy and worried and said, "Oh, but I'd be able to get a hold of you any time, right? And I'd always have your phone number." And I, ooh, you know. And the third person, who I ended up hiring, who was my assistant for 13 years, thought about it for a minute, and she said well, I don't have really high social needs, so I think that would be okay. And as long as we had a pretty good way to stay in touch and, you know, I could kind of give you a download at the end of the day, I think that would be fine. And if I'd asked the normal, are you okay with that question, I wouldn't have gotten any of that differentiation.
0: And in your book, you create a framework to get people in the mindset of being able to ask the right questions when interviewing. Yeah. You know, I I always tell people you get 100% of the answers back to the questions you ask, and if you're not getting the right answers, you're asking the wrong questions.
1: Oh, that's great. That's exactly right.
0: When you watch professionals' interview, like Barbara Walters, I'll never forget the comment she made one time when someone said, well, you seem so natural and relaxed when you're doing these interviews. And she said, well, I write 200 questions before I go into doing an interview. So she's totally prepared.
1: And it's not only true of interviewing. It's true of most things that you do with employees. There's way too much winning it. I mean, people go in interviews and they haven't thought at all about the questions they want to ask. And so they end up talking a lot and defaulting to this, these sort of obvious right answer questions. But it's true in everything else too. It's later on in the book, there's a, we have a model for delegation and delegating is, you know, it's not just assigning tasks. It's, it's transferring an area of responsibility to somebody. And so many managers just kind of wander into that. Hey, why don't you start taking care of you know, the Olympics. Okay, good. Okay, I'll see you later, you know, (laughs) rather than giving it the time and preparation up front that it deserves to make sure that the person understands what you're asking of them, they understand what kind of oversight you're going to offer, how you're going to, how that gradual transfer is going to take place so that they're successful. You know, there's way too much winging it uh, with managers when they're doing important things for their employees. And you can't, you know, you can't just wander into things. You have to prepare for important conversations at least
0: to some extent thank you for that because the question was you know, what is foundational because i went through the book and i got to jen's and i said you know great book erica but none of it matters if you've hired the wrong person right we got to get the, exactly. we got to start with the right person Exactly. let's talk about onboarding new employees when we're onboarding our people you write that there's really three good questions that we need to answer <laughs> who do i need to know How do things get done around here? And what's expected of me? And I thought, you know, again, this is so basic, but if we went and asked a bunch of employees today, we lined up 100 people and asked them those three questions, especially in the first 30 days of the job, I bet they couldn't answer it.
1: Exactly. And it's really anxiety producing, and they're so easy to answer well. What we found is this is just a human need. If you're moving to a new town or going to a new school or starting a new club or beginning a new job or... In your relationship, that's what you want to know. You know, who do I need to know? How does stuff get done? What's expected of me? And if you can answer those questions well and simply for somebody in the first 30 days, it's amazing how much steeper than the learning curve can become. People can get up to speed so much more quickly if they know those basic things.
0: Erica, when you work with your clients, how do you get them ready for this part of the onboarding of setting up what are the expectations of the employee? Who do they need to know? And what do they need to get done? How do you do that for your clients?
1: Well, there's, you, know, you, you can do it in a variety of ways. When I wrote the book, I really tried to give as much help and support in the book as possible. So at the end of that chapter, there's a kind of template onboarding. You know, here's what you can do in the first day, the first couple of days, the first week to help people with these three simple things. And so we actually, I actually included a template in the book that a lot of clients have, have subsequently used. And, and I say to clients, here, let's take this template and start here. And it's just a matter of, of those three things, of, of connecting people with the people that they need to know who are important to their job success, making sure they have good, strong relationships with those people early on. Helping them understand the explicit and implicit, you know, the explicit, like the actual processes and systems they have to use to get things done, literally how things get done. But also helping them understand the, the less obvious kind of cultural expectations in the company. Oh, you know, we never do this. We always do that. I mean, and, and a lot of it. And then the third thing is, you know, uh, if you have a good job description and you, you have a – and I talk a lot about job descriptions. Most job descriptions are pretty awful but if you create a good one that's really, really focuses on the core responsibilities that person has, then that's a great way to communicate to them what's expected of them. But, but, but back to the how do things get done around here? If if you've worked in a place for quite a while, there are all there's all kinds of um, kind of subterranean understanding you have about the way stuff gets done, and what's what's cool to do and what's not cool to do, all the way from how do you dress, how do you talk, how, how much can you kind of talk back to, you know, the powers that be, all that kind of stuff. And if you can bring that to your conscious awareness and, and share it with new employees, oh, my gosh, it just makes their, it makes their life so much easier. They, they tend not to make cultural mistakes, and they just can get up and running so much more quickly. So to the extent that you can share with people, here, this is the kind of organization, that these are the expectations that we have of people This is how people operate together. It's so incredibly
0: helpful. Our guest is Erica Anderson. In addition to Erica Anderson sharing her expertise in how to lead and develop great employees, you can find other experts that have shared their wisdom with us here on BizTalk. Those are available as podcasts on our website and cover business topics in the areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales, sales management, and personal development. You can download these podcasts from our website, you can download these podcasts from our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z talkradioshow.com. Erica, in your book, you state making clear agreements includes clarifying commitment and support. Talk to our audience about those three things.
1: This goes to what's expected of me. Lots of times, employees are just not clear what's expected of them. They don't have a good job descriptions, then they don't have a good conversation with their managers. The manager kind of does a look at a promise about what the job is, and then the person is just left kind of on their own trying to desperately figure it out by themselves. And if you, like for instance, let's say that you are a sales manager and you you want the person to be clear on what the expectation is about how, how, you know, let's say you're going to give them a client. They're a new person. You're taking, you know, somebody's overloaded, so you're taking, you're making them the account manager. I'm just, you know, making this up. You're making them the account manager of a new client. It's so important to sit down with them and clarify, first of all, why it's important, how it works, what's expected, you know, really what success looks like, a clear and kind of compelling picture of what success will look like for them managing this client. And then to get there, to make it a two-way conversation to say, okay, what questions do you have? What concerns do you have? Do you see any obstacles? What else do you need to know to make sure they're really clear? And then the commitment stage is you kind of write it down. And, And it's great if you get them to do it like so just to make sure we're on the same page, can you write down for me your understanding of what it's going to mean for you to manage this client? Okay, boom, 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 boom. And then what kind of support do you need from me in order to do this? What do I expect of you? What do you expect from me? And then the support phase is you actually give the support that you've set. Like for instance, if you say, if they say, well one of the things that I'm I'm really gonna need is to understand a little bit about the history of this client and you say, okay, well, Joe, who has been managing them for the last three years, I'll get him to sit down with you sometime over the next week or two and really just give you a deep dive on what's happened with this client over the last three or four years, and we have some documentation, but mostly you're going to get it from Joe's from the horse's mouth, then you got to do that. <laughs> That's your responsibility then as a the manager. If you've clarified and committed and then you don't do the support you said you're going to do that kind of throws it all into suspicion land so you have to make it really clear what the agreement is why it's important how it's going to work and then get it write it down here's what you're going to do here's what I'm going to do and then do what you said you're going to do and if you do that it really makes a huge difference and it's not a huge amount of time I mean that initial conversation takes for a big responsibility you know that you're making an agreement about half an hour 45 minutes an hour and then maybe it's a couple hours of your time over the next few weeks to support it those man those are those are investment hours you know you get that time back times 10 if you do it well
0: so erica one other thing i want to talk about in your book here you bring up explain the differentiation between managing somebody and coaching somebody
1: you are asking really good questions so we use Coaching to mean something very specific. So managing somebody, I would say, covers the whole, everything I'm talking about in this book, from soup to nuts. So managing somebody is supporting them to success through their life cycle with you, like thinking about who are you going to bring on, bringing them on well, getting them started well, you know, making listening to them, making clear agreements, giving them feedback, delegating to them, and then coaching them. And coaching we mean very specifically to mean, um, helping someone improve, you know, helping them get better in a certain area. So let's say again that you have a salesperson, and you know they're they're good at a lot of things, but one thing that they're that they're not good at is, let's just say, organizing their time. You know, they're great with the with the prospects and clients, and they have really good people skills, and they're. Uh, they're enthusiastic about the product, and they know how to talk about it in a way, and they're good consultant salespeople, all that kind of stuff. But they're just not well organized, and they have to be, you know, as, especially as they as their book of business builds up. So um, coaching that person would mean sitting down with them, saying kind of this is an area where you need to improve. Are you open to improving? And then having a coaching conversation with them where you where you figure out how they're going to improve. Is it you teaching it to them? Is it them taking a course? Is it them being mentored by maybe a peer who's very good at it? Is it them figuring out some system? You you help them figure out how to improve in a particular area. And then as with an agreement, you support it. You 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 keep in touch with them. You set some benchmarks and timelines. You You support them through that process to make sure that they know that you mean it and so that you can track progress and improvement. So we use coaching to mean helping a person improve in a particular area of their performance.
0: I think coaching is a learned skill. I know I definitely had to learn it. And I can imagine our managers listening today and they're saying, that's great. Everybody just automatically shows up and they start managing throughout the day or the week. What is the technique? that you use to get in that coaching mindset to, to throw the switch from, okay, manage, directing, and leading this person, throw the switch. I need to be coaching them right now. How do we do that?
1: Oh, I love that question. So there's a, I'm sure you noticed in the book, we talk about the coach's mindset. And the mindset that is most helpful when you're trying to coach someone to improve is to believe in their potential and to want to help them succeed. Mm. So you have to kind of investigate your own mindset. If you don't believe in someone's potential to do what you're trying to help them get better at doing, you're not going to be able to help them. It's that simple. If you don't think they can do it, you're not going to be able to help them do it. That's just mindset is that powerful. So you have to sort of investigate and be honest about your own your own belief system. If, if you actually don't think that the person is capable of getting better, You should free them to work for somebody else because it's going to be a horrible experience for both of you, you know. (laughs) But if you are in that place, if you do believe in their potential, then the other half is to want to help them succeed. And, again, you have to be very self-reflective and accurate in your self-awareness. And if you don't really want to help them succeed, years ago I coached this executive, and he had some people who were very good, but they really needed help to get even better. And I said to him, so do you believe that these people are capable of getting better? Like, do you believe in their potential? And he said, yes. I said, do you want to help them succeed? And he kind of got this sour look on his face, and I said, what? (laughs) And he said, well, they're grown-ups. I shouldn't have to help them succeed. They ought to be able to do it on their own. I said, you really believe that? He said, yeah. I mean, these are pretty senior people. They ought to be able to get better. I said, okay, so do you think your boss feels like that about you? Fortunately, he had a really good boss, so I could use this as an example. He it just stopped and called. And he said, "No, no, I, I actually think my boss really, really wants to help me." And I said to him, "Okay, great. How does that feel to you? Feels great. Okay, how can you help yourself get into that mindset about your folks? And then we got into, and I talk about this in all three of my books because I think it's so important. We got into his his self talk. How what was his mental monologue? And the very good news is, one can manage one's self-talk. He, he realized that his self-talk was, you know, they're grown ups. I shouldn't have to help them. It bugs me that I have to help them. And he shifted it toward, hey, everybody needs help to get better at the stuff they don't know how to do. It, that's he literally shifted his little mental tape, and it made a huge difference. You know, he really started started coaching.
0: Erica, I think a lot of managers struggle with this. So, define for our audience the difference between managing and coaching.
1: When I say managing, I mean the whole your whole toolkit: getting the right people hired, you know, getting them started correctly, listening to them deeply, making clear agreements with them about what they're meant to do, giving them feedback either when they're doing it well or when they're not, delegating big areas of responsibility to them, and then coaching. and And coaching is about improve, specifically about learning to do new things and so it's it's pretty targeted as the way everything else is like i think about the people that that i manage and manage lightly because they're consultants so it's a very collaborative thing i coach them some but that's not the main my main my main interaction with them is not is not helping them improve they're pretty great and i do sometimes have to say hey here's a here's a place where it'd be great if you grew let's that's helped you grow here, so I think the I, I think of the whole umbrella as managing, and it involves lots of different tools in the toolkit, and that coaching is one of the tools in that toolkit.
0: I was curious. You have any thoughts? Have you seen the movie Jobs? on, on Stephen Jobs. I haven't. Job? haven't no, nope, I haven't seen it yet. Because I read your book, and I thought you see and hear how Stephen Jobs operated, and somehow he was able to pull it off, which is diametrically opposed, what you talk about in the book
1: here. Diametrically opposed in some ways, but it's just, it's kind of like, I was talking to somebody about Steve Jobs the other day relative to my, the, uh, the reading so people will follow a book. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, it sounds like Steve Jobs was horrible to deal with. And, and I said, but really think about it. So there are these six things, right? Farsighted, passionate, courageous, wise, generous, trustworthy. So he was definitely farsighted, passionate, and courageous, just off the charts. Mm-hmm. He probably was, he was probably moderate on wise. He wasn't very generous, except to certain people. And I don't think he was very trustworthy, sadly. But he's so over-indexed on the first three that it kind of carried him through in spite of his deficiencies in the others. And I've seen that sometimes. If somebody is just world-class in some of them, people will put up for the person's deficiencies because they're so amazing on, the, on, and on part of the job of leader.
0: Our guest is Erica Anderson. We're talking about her book. Growing Great Employees, Turning Ordinary People into Extraordinary Performers. Erica, is there one thing about your book that I should have asked you about that we haven't discussed yet? You have done a fantastic
1: job of just, you know, kind of running through the book and the core things. I think the only thing we haven't covered is, you know, I spend the whole whole book really talking about what are the responsibilities and skills and mindset of a good manager and then the, toward the end of the book, I say, and there's a responsibility of good employees, too. You know, sometimes good, skillful, well-intentioned managers kind of get held hostage to bad employees because they they keep trying to be skillful with them, and it doesn't work, and they keep sort of blaming themselves. It's like, am I, should I be doing something differently? Is it me? You know, so, so I kind of lay out in one chapter, like, what good employees do. And, and good employees do, do these things for the most part. They are open to feedback. They're, they're you know, I mean, not, we're not always open. But good employees, generally speaking, when you give them feedback, they take it in, they want to hear it, they try to improve. So, so they're open to that. Second thing is know that at the end of the day, they need to manage their own growth they will really they will love your help they will ask for your help but they don't expect you know you to drag them kicking and screaming to the next level they know that they're they are self-generating learners and improvers and they're trying to get better so the the main impulse of getting better comes from comes from them that's good in place to do that good in place keep their agreements i thought this sounds you know silly but I can't tell you how many times over the years I've I've seen managers really held hostage to people who just kind of don't really exactly do what they say they're going to do. Kind of they do, kind of they don't, you know, but they never really just go, boom, I can totally rely on. And then the last thing is good employees play well with others. They're good corporate citizens. They don't make life hell for other people. You know, they're good to be around. They support the success of everybody. And, and if you, you know, if you have an employee that you're wondering whether or not to let go of and you kind of go down that checklist, you know, how do they respond to feedback, do they manage their own growth, do they keep their agreements, do they play well with others, and you're kind of going no, 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 no. Well, you know what? If you've done everything you, that's your responsibility to do, if you've made clear agreements and given them feedback and given them a chance to improve and they're still acting like this, you should probably let them go so and the reason I wrote that chapter is because I wanted to make it clear that this is you know it takes two to tango and you know if you're really doing everything that's your responsibility as a good manager and the person's still dragging their heels and being a pain in the neck all the time you know that's
0: their responsibility good point <laughs> so Erica if people want to learn more about the topic or more about what you do where should they go
1: Well, they can go to our website, the the company website, proteus-international.com. They can go to my Forbes blog. If you just go to blogs at Forbes and look at my name, Erica Anderson, and I I write there two, three, four times a week, and always about how to make work better, a lot about management and leadership and employees and how to you know how to succeed. Um, and you're, I would love it. You can read any of my books. So Growing Great Places was my first book, and I wrote a book called Being Strategic, and the, and the last book that I just came out last year is called Leading So People Will Follow. And I like to think that they're all
0: helpful. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, podcast and Leading People Who Can Follow will, is out on the BizTalk website, biztalkradioshow.com. Yeah. Erica, thanks for being on the program.
1: Oh, thank you so much. You all have such good questions. I really appreciate it, Jim.
0: My pleasure. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.